Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly biotechnology podcast that's not just about biotechnology. Providing information to help you change hearts and minds. Moving innovations to application with communication. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. I'm Kevin Fulta, and today we're going to talk with uh, one of my colleagues here at the University of Florida, someone who, um, again, are you still a colleague? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm still a colleague. You're an emeritus colleague. Well, uh, that's, that's, that's just a technical <laughs> issue. <laughs> no, of course. Dr. Kurt Hanna, uh, Professor Hanna has been here at the University of Florida since when? Uh, it started in January of 1974. So it's January 1974, and you're still here. I'm still here. And uh, what, And you retired like 20 years ago or something. Uh, nine, <laughs> let's see, uh, it was officially retired nine years ago, January. Yeah, but you still hang around and writing grants and... Writing grants. Uh, writing sent, papers. Sent off a, a, a grant proposal this morning, in fact. Awesome. <laughs> traveling to China next month to give a talk, so... Yeah, so still very much active as faculty, um, right. and you've been part of the faculty. You come to faculty meetings, um, and it's one of the one of the great things about being in this department is because it's you and uh, Gloria Moore, Paul Irene. Paul Irene. We have um, these faculty who uh, have been here and, and spent their careers here, yet still stick around and continue to contribute in a really really big way. Uh, still teaching classes. Still teach. Uh, ironically, Paul Irene and I were graduate students together at the University of Wisconsin. <laughs> so so we started uh, long before Florida being uh, interactors. Wow, that's really cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well so tell tell me a little bit about so today we're going to talk about um, sweet corn. And back in maybe episode 58, we spoke with Jeb Dobley, Jed Dobley about um, uh, corn in general and where it came from, uh, its general evolution. And we talked about the different kinds of field corn and flint corn, that kind of thing. So people who are really interested in that might want to go back to that. But let's, um, let's start with just that first, and then we'll talk about how your career introgressed into that. Um, what is the difference between sweet corn and corn? The, the the fundamental difference is uh, there's a buildup of sugar in in sweet corns, uh, whereas you get a buildup of starch in all other corns, field corn, 
number two yellow. It's, it is grown in the Midwest. But that's, that's the fundamental difference. There are other differences as well. There is uh, uh, pericarp thickness because of taking a bite. Uh, and then there's some, some differences that are kind of subtle. Um, for example, with field corn, you don't care how much force it takes to pull the ear off the stalk. Sweet corn, that's a characteristic because the, the huge majority of sweet corn is harvested by hand. Uh, there are beautiful stories of, of uh, people breeding excellent hybrids and then they tried to harvest it and uh, it took a lot of energy to pull the ear off the stalk and that was the end of that hybrid. So there are traits that, that are important in sweet corn that are not important in field corn. Um, the color of the flag leaf or the ear leaf. In some markets that, ears, that leaf is attached, they want a nice green ear. Hmm. Uh, for field corn, who cares? Yeah, who cares? Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the general idea when we talk about field corn is that this is the stuff that we think about that is um, grown throughout the Midwest that's primarily used for animal feed or ethanol, that kind of thing. Correct, correct. Yeah, and this is the stuff that uh, really is the, um, the the backbone when we think about corn. Sweet corn is how much of the market, I mean, in general? I, I don't know the exact numbers. I would guess... One percent, two percent, something like that. It's, it's it's very minor compared to field corn. Uh, it's large if you live in Florida or, or in the well, actually in Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin, uh, for processed corn, the canned corn. That's it's a big crop there as well. But now it's not nearly as big as as field corn. But are, but, it, but it's an important crop in certain areas. Are most growers growing this as say an adjunct to the field corn operation that you can have a roadside stand and some like? I mean, it used to be in DeKalb that you'd see that all the time. Right. Yeah, there are these roadside operations. Um, some farmers do it. It's kind of a side, almost a side job kind of thing. Um, so yeah, uh, we on our home farm in Indiana, we, we, we grow an acre of corn, sweet corn, uh, but it's for the neighbors and the family, and and some people show up we don't even know. Uh, they, <laughs> they know we grow it, and they come out and pick it. So. Like, are these the famous corn drifters we hear about? Well, yeah, that's a good way of... Uh, uh, we like to be good neighbors, and uh, so uh, the corn's there for people to take. That's pretty cool. And then, as you, you've said, the family farm. And they, it's always worth noting that not only are you a famous professor, but you're also a, a, a farmer. I mean, you do it. I go back uh, for the harvest. I spend time up there, uh, help make some of the decisions. Uh, we sell about 15,000 hogs a year, farm 2,000 acres. So my nephew actually runs the shop. But uh, You just wrecked the combines? Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've had some... Issues with combines, burned one up, uh, ran another one into a tree. Um, so, yeah, yeah, there are stories up there. Well, the majority of the story in terms of your experience with sweet corn it comes from really your life's work and understanding the, um, the, uh, the starch biosynthesis and how that was working inside the kernel. Because really when you're looking at starch biosynthesis, you're looking at accumulation of a carbohydrate that other mechanisms then take over and can convert to uh, other compounds, sugars. Correct. So 
Can you tell us a little bit about that work so that we have a background for how this proceeds? Okay. It's, it's an interesting story. Um, when I interviewed here in, in late 1973, uh, the University of Florida had just released a couple of uh, uh, sweet corns based on a gene called shrunken two, which gives a lot more sugar than the old traditional sweet corns. And so it was a big topic of discussion here. And I came down and gave a seminar on on how the shrunken two gene functioned at the biochemical level. So the the tie-in was immediate. And from that point on, then I had an interest in the the sweet corn uh, breeding program here at Florida, which, as you know, up until recently was solely based in in Belglade, and now uh, partially in, in Gainesville with Marcio Resende here. Yeah. But uh, so yeah, that was my kind of my first introduction to sweet corn, and I I stayed connected and at different levels over the years with the with the sweet corn breeding program here. And and maybe we're dancing around a lot, but it does make sense that people don't realize that Florida produces a lot of sweet corn. Yes, a lot of sweet corn. What Florida has going for it, of course, it's it's uh, it's not the soil types, and it's not the we have all kinds of bugs and and uh, yeah, pathogens yeah. because we don't have killing winters, but we have heat when other people don't. So we can produce crops when they can't be produced in the Midwest. So it's grown here and shipped north, uh, and we fill a niche. Yeah. So our season is really maybe planting in February and harvesting throughout uh, April, May, that kind of. Right. Right. And and then and they can actually even go further south, uh, out of the Belglade area, down into the gla- into um, uh, well south south of Miami. Yeah. And basically grow corn there all year long, but they grow it to fit a niche, a market niche. Yeah. So it's a higher value. During those Higher windows, because yeah. you can never outcompete the Midwest. Ultimately, that's um, right. That's so, right. Uh, do they still sell to Europe? Yes, uh, a lot of corn, believe it or not, is picked in South Florida, put on ships, and shipped to Europe. Uh, I, I've often wondered what that corn tastes like time it gets to <laughs> Europe, but uh, it sells. Uh, and this, of course, has been an issue with the GMOs. Because we can't ship to Europe, hence they can't grow GMOs in uh, in South Florida. Yeah, we'll come back to that. We'll come okay. back to that at the end. That's okay. kind of an important point. So, when you're talking about shrunken too, what does it do? It's it's uh, there. Then there'll be a quiz on this in a few minutes. That's right. Yeah, yeah. at the end. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 the large subunit of an enzyme called adenosine diphosphoglucose pyrophosphorylase. And this enzyme makes uh, a nucleotide sugar called ADP glucose, and the glucose of that then is is used to synthesize the starches, amylose, amylopectin, uh, and as well as uh, phytoglycogen. Phytoglycogen is an important one because it gives the creaminess to certain sweet corns, the creamy taste in your mouth. Okay, so when you have a mutation in this large subunit. Right. When you have a mutation, then you knock it out, and hence you don't convert uh, the sugars to starch. So it's kind of a roadblock um, in in this pathway. So you build up stuff that normally would be converted. Yeah, so that's kind of cool. So the plant, as, as we know through photosynthesis, is making sugars. Right. And then the plant assembles these into starches using these um, enzyme complexes, or using right. this enzyme. And then uh, in, the, in this case, when you mutate that enzyme, you're not c- taking those simpler sugars and making complex starches. Right. And now we have sweet, and that means sweet corn. Correct. That's, that's hence the term 
Yeah, yeah it's sweet, sweet so corn. So why did they call it shrunken, too? Uh, the first person who described the mutant looked at the kernel and said, that looks shrunken. <laughs> so okay. so the first one was called shrunken one, this was shrunken two, <laughs> then there's shrunken three, shrunken four. Interestingly, other people looked at the same phenotype, the same shrunken kernel, they called it brittle. So there's brittle one, brittle two, brittle three. It's all the same phenotype, and in fact, uh, I, I said this enzyme, I said the large subunit, there's a small subunit, you knock that out, you get a kernel that looks exactly like it, but that gene's called brittle two. Yeah. So, it, and it's, it goes back to the original people who named these genes, and it's stuck, and we're not going to change uh, nomenclature. Well, who, who was uh, the person behind this originally? Interesting point. The um, um, These came out of all oh, the 40s. Uh, Shrunken 2 actually came from the University of Michigan by a guy by the name of Maines, M-A-I-N-S, published the work in 1943. And um, the shrunken one gene had been published at that time, and he figured out this wasn't shrunken one, so he called it shrunken two. Now, the person who then realized this was good for sweet corn was a fellow in Illinois by the name of John Lawnan, who uh, we lost several years ago, but he was actually a good friend of mine. And he was, he was using it as a genetic marker for some genetic studies, and he happened to taste it, and it tasted sweet. <laughs> And so he ran the sugars, and he thought this might be a pretty good sweet corn, because the sweet corns up to that point had a mutant gene called sugar one, uh, elevates the sugar, but not nearly to the extent that knocking out shrunken two does. So he developed the first uh, commercial shrunken two based sweet corn. It was called Illini Extra Sweet. Uh, it was good. It, it lacked plant vigor. Uh, so it didn't really catch on commercially. But then a breeder here in Florida, the name of Emil Wolf, uh, knew of John's work. And given the Florida market where the corn is harvested and then the time between harvest and consumption is in days or weeks, you need something with a phenomenal shelf life, a higher sugar to start with. So Emil uh, took the shrunken two and put it in a different uh, genetic background. Uh, actually has a three-way cross in there and so the first commercially useful shrunken two corn actually came out of uh, the University of Florida in the work of Emma Wolf. Uh, now shrunken two has basically taken over the the world market. There's still some sugary corns around um, uh, combined with some other genes but they're they're minor players in the whole thing. And so uh, sugary one, is that a, uh, a different mechanism or is, allele, is it allele in the same gene? No, it's actually, it's an interesting, the sugary one gene encodes an enzyme that actually debranches okay. starch polymers. Mm -hmm. And so, and what was interesting here was if you, if you knock, if you had, if you knock out an enzyme that debranches starch, you make more starch. It was counterintuitive how this thing works, but when the gene was cloned, and it turned out to be a, a debranching enzyme, and there are models for why this is probably 
uh, why uh, losing this? Well, what what goes on is you make highly branched starch, and you can't package it as well. You can't get as much in there, so you have to put a lot of branches in, and you cleave certain branches. Uh, the the branch points are in clusters, and uh, so then you can make more starch. But it was counterintuitive. Again, the powers of having mutants, right? You know, uh, so yeah, it's an intriguing. It's all very intriguing. Uh, how how we make that molecule? Well, that starch, and, and that's something for people who maybe don't know a lot about starch. It's uh, a molecule that's assembled, or a, a polymer that's assembled from monomers that are put together in very specific ways. Maybe end to end, but then in some cases they're put together um, side to side or top to bottom. If you look at it, you know, um, in, on a piece of paper. Right. And the idea is is that that's kind of the where those debranching enzymes really make an effect. Right. So you get these more linear ones that aren't branching side to side. Right. And so that so that dramatically changes the what starch is right and, and in this case uh that sugary one that was doing that right yeah it's an interesting story if you don't take these things out you get a soluble polysaccharide like bacteria have so can you imagine what plant life would have been like if the polysaccharides had been soluble you could never dry a seed down for example you could never get the weight and plant agriculture would have been uh totally different had it not been for these <laughs> these debranching enzymes, so yeah, no, um, so no, very yeah. cool stuff. Yeah, so let's um, let's uh, take a quick break here, and when we come back on the other side of the break, um, we'll talk about some of the other issues about about sweet corn here in the state of Florida and everywhere else, uh, where the future is going and what the new genetics look like. Uh, this is the Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back with Dr. Kurt Hanna in just a few minutes. Hello, Talking Biotech listeners. My name is Nick Syke, and I wanted to take just a quick moment to tell you about No Ideas Media. That's No with a K and a W. It's a media company I've recently started, and its express purpose is to have pragmatic conversations about divisive topics. And I'm willing to bet that since you're here listening to a biotechnology podcast right now, you'd probably agree that a pragmatic conversation about this topic could benefit a lot of people, especially when we're talking about biotechnology in food, the dreaded GMO. This is the first topic I wanted No Ideas Media to focus on, and I wanted to learn it pretty well. So I traveled like all over the place, Hawaii to Uganda. I interviewed a Schwaka experts, including this pretty awesome guy you might have heard of named Kevin Folta. I'm making videos with all these interviews, and I'd love you to check them out. You can find them by searching No Ideas Media on YouTube or Facebook. Remember, that's no as in knowledge. Every week, you'll find a new video featuring some exciting expert or topic to do with genetically engineered food. And the videos are perfect for people who aren't super familiar with the science. So I would really encourage you to share them, especially with people you know who need to take a look at this scary topic of GMO a little more pragmatically. Also, if you want to get in on a surprisingly constructive conversation about this topic, and maybe even contribute to changing a few minds, follow No Ideas Media on Facebook and get in on the conversations there. It also really helps us if you subscribe to the No Ideas Media YouTube channel. Plus, that way you'll always know when there's something new and exciting to watch and share. And I mean, let's face it, we all want to be in the know, right? That's why you're listening to this podcast, after all, which I think I'll let you get back to about now. Thanks a lot.
we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. Today, talking about the really the molecular basis or the biochemical basis of what makes sweet corn sweet and what makes sweet corn different from regular field corn. And we're speaking with an expert on this, and that's Dr. Kurt Hanna here from the University of Florida and um, someone I've known for a long time, 15 years plus. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I, w- I was on the committee that... Uh, that Made you the offer, in fact. That's right. I remember yeah. the first night we had dinner at Mildred's. <laughs> but um, so we're, we're talking about the um, kind of the basis of sweet corn and what makes it sweet and what makes it different. And we talked a lot about the different uh, genes that, that were um, playing a role in this process. But there's also this thing, uh, well, the shrunken two is this major allele that um, really revolutionized the entire sweet corn industry, right? That was a big deal. Yes. And what was what was sweet corn like? We talked about sugary one, but even before that, but were people? Uh, how did they come across sweet corn in the first place? Interesting question. Um, probably the world's expert on that is is a good friend of ours, Bill Tracy, mm-hmm. and uh, Bill's hypothesis is is that the sugary one originally was not used because it was it was sweet, but they would get it in the dose stage and eat it in the dose stage. It was a little sweeter. Uh, the properties of the corn made it uh, better for for all kinds of things. So it was first used as a, in the dose stage, and then people realized it was, it was sweeter. And there were actually five different cases of domestication, or five different mutant alleles of sugary one that have been found uh, throughout oh, okay. America. And he thinks each one of those was, was a domestication uh, event mm-hmm. and by domestication I mean a mutant that happened <clears throat> and then people realized it had advantages and they they propagated it and used it. Yeah we talked so. a lot about domestication on the podcast and, and I've heard Bill talk about that that sweet corn or, or corn in general was the sweetness in the diet because people in the indigenous peoples in North America and Central America didn't have sugar beets and you didn't have uh, other forms of sweetness and so you really were getting it from corn, which you know isn't we don't think of as overly sweet. But these were the alleles that, when they popped up, right, right, yeah, they probably really played a role in <clears throat> in shaping the domestication process. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, shrunken two didn't go through that kind of a, of a, a window. Oh, that's true. It was, and I think I know why. I mean, it was picked up uh, because of genetics. It was around as a, actually a genetic marker. And then it was the geneticist who figured out, okay, this this has a commercial use. Um, The reason I think that is the case is that the shrunken two block is much more severe in the pathway than the sugary one block, and the mutant itself has all kinds of germination problems. So it's going to be lost uh, just because it can't germinate very well. Yeah, that's the obvious question. If people are selecting for sweetness, why would they miss the, the... mutations in the gene that makes it the sweetest. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I think I think they probably, some people had it, but they couldn't propagate it. And, and that's been a problem in the sweet corn industry as well when it was first being used. The reason John Lonnon's hybrid didn't really make it was they had germination issues. And one of the things that our emo wolf did was get, get these things in genetic backgrounds that, that gave adequate germination for commercial use. Um, we've we played in that arena 
by getting a shrunken two allele, is, it's, it splits the difference, an allele we call shrunken two I. So it, it the block, so so the, the the block in the first allele uh, that came out of University of Michigan and John Lawton worked with is an allele we call shrunken two R. R for reference, meaning the first mutant that described the gene. That's a total block in the path in the pathway. There's still starch there, a little bit of starch, and we just sent a paper off to Plant Cell, uh, giving uh, how we think that starch gets there. We think it actually gets there, not by the use of pyrophosphorylase, but by use of other enzymes, perhaps uh, sucrosynthase or starch phosphorylase. Um, but this this double-edged sword of having a kernel that's really really sweet that people like to eat but also having a mature seed that will germinate it's it's the sweeter it is the more problems you have with germination so this shrunken to I allele kind of splits the difference it has a milder phenotype at the eating stage but it germinates very well yes yeah, so, uh, yeah. so and one of the intriguing things about that is I, I think the mouth um, you can saturate the, the sweetness reaction in the mouth. E- even at the optimal eating stage, shrunken 2i does not have the sugar levels of the original shrunken 2 allele. It has a milder phenotype at the eating stage, but it germinates a whole lot better. And interestingly, while there's a difference in sugar content of shrunken 2i versus the original allele, the mouth cannot distinguish those. So the mouth reads it as being just as sweet it's not a naturally occurring allele. It came from chemical mutagenesis. Uh, the the pollen were treated with with uh, with a chemical mutagen that killed half the pollen, or more. Um, uh, and and this came out of the. This was a mutant pulled out of there. We, we know exactly what the sequence difference is in this allele, and we know why it's leaky. But and and this allele was back crossed into other corns, but. God only knows what other mutations <laughs> came well, along with it. Uh, well, let's, let's drill down on that a little bit because okay. you said a lot of things there that might perk up the ears of the average listener. You got leaky alleles, and all that. so let's let's go okay. back. To, okay, right, so okay, you, so you were looking for other versions of the of the shrunken two allele. Correct. And so one way to do that might be to use in, in the in the in at the time when when was this that you did that mutagenesis. Actually, it was done in, in a different lab, and it was sent to us, and we realized what, what could be done with it. So this was done in the 70s. Okay, so in the 70s, what you would do would be, and this is probably from the 40s to the 70s, even before, um, you would use chemicals that would mutate DNA, right. specific bases, or you would use um, radiation. So radiation use, was another one, yes. Use fast neutron or, um, or X-rays, other, even. X-rays. And you would put uh, seed or pollen or whatever um, in those fields or in those chemicals, and you would cause damage to DNA. Then in the next generation or whatever you would plant out, you'd find most of the stuff was dead mm-hmm. because Correct. it was just hammered with mutations and couldn't function. Right. Yet some small amount would survive, and out of the survivors, you would occasionally see some useful trait. Exactly. And maybe the rest of the plant is totally garbage. Like it would grow horribly and it was sick, but gosh, it made a lot of sugar in the corn in the right. kernels. Right. So now you knew you had something special in there. Now you had to do what they call back crossing, where you cross that screwed up plant, if it if you can, against maybe a really good plant. 
and try to bring in that 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 new favorable gene while kind of with every round of back crossing against a different uh, very um, elite plant kind of getting rid of the garbage while keeping the good stuff exactly and so this is when you're talking about having alleles and then doing the back crosses all you're really doing is crossing against a good parent to get rid of all the garbage and keep the traits that you want Exactly. Okay, so that's where we are. And so you're talking about the shrunken 2i um, being a leaky allele. And what does that mean? Leaky means it had some function. Uh, in contrast to the original mutant, that was a total loss of function. This one had some function. Okay, and then the other part about this was, what, what chemical word did they use? Ethylmethane sulfonate. Ah, the old EMS. The old EMS. Yeah, super yeah. nasty stuff. Oh, it's mm-hmm. a it's it's toxic. And yeah. and it uh, changes uh, it affects specific DNA bases. Right. And and what's beautiful about that is that, well at the right concentration you can do a lot awful lot of damage and create a lot of new traits. Exactly. So even this one that you've back crossed dozens and dozens of times perhaps um, still has. A lot of the baggage coming along from that damage because anything in the genetic neighborhood of the mutation that you want um, there still may be lots of other changes that you never anticipated exactly exactly so there are a lot of possible unknowns coming along with this yeah collateral issues yeah and, and this is all under the banner of conventional plant breeding which we look at as being safe and and uh, no issues and warm and fuzzy and warm and fuzzy (laughs) and at the university of florida patented this gene it went to the market no concern at all about safety um so if you equate danger with unknowns you know this is not a you know and patents and pat oh yeah we have a patent on it and uh, so it's got because we have the sequences on yeah yeah this is a this is a patent on a gene that's not a transgene it's so it this idea that uh transgenics led to plant patenting you know when the first when you could first legally patent a plant well i was going to say 1937 1930. 1930. Oh, that's a little bit off. The Plant uh, Protection Act was signed in 1930. 1930, okay. The Plant Variety Protection Act was signed uh, in 1970. Okay. So long before transgenes. I knew there was a along. seven in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, so that, but, but, but that's, that's always a really important point, that here people have been patenting genes because they have value commercially. Correct. And the way that you're able to... In, to survive as a breeding program is to patent these things and be able to have a little money come back to the program to be able to uh, seed the next generation of research. Right. It's really hard to get money to do breeding research. Exactly. Because it takes, you know, uh, I I was down at our um, Citrus Research Center yesterday, and you're talking to scientists here who've been spending 15, 20, 30 years to generate new lines of citrus. And, and how much it costs for them to do that, what fields and fields of trees. It's um, enormously expensive. And uh, they're just starting to see returns coming back to their programs now, which right. is great. Right, But back to shrunken 2i. So this thing has, um, it's, it's a patented gene. It uh, is kind of half functional, and it gives you a, a comparable sense of, of sweetness in the kernel. Correct. If, if, if eaten... Uh, at the optimal time, you know, with with not very long uh, storage and things like that. Mm-hmm. With time, you can distinguish the two. Yeah. Uh, and what the companies have done is they've combined it, uh, shrunk two eye with a sugary mutation and things like that. So you start stacking these these mutants. Uh, so yeah, it's it's been uh, 
uh, sales are going up and up and up. Uh, the downside is the patent's running out. So, <laughs> well, how many more years is that? I think it's got one year. One more I, year. I, I don't want the companies to hear that. <laughs> I just hope they keep paying. Yeah, they but, should anyway. Yeah, they should. But they, could, they probably have lawyers who watch that kind of stuff. No, they probably have a big X on the calendar. If you're asking me, I, you know how they work, right? Yeah. Well, uh, so we talked about this whole idea of mutagenesis and creating the genetic changes just by using mutagens. Right. But you know, we also said that there's no genetic engineered sweet corn sold in Florida. Um, so first, let, let's talk about how much of the national sweet corn is genetically engineered. Is any of it? it yeah, they, they sell it in these U-Pick operations yeah. in the Midwest mm-hmm. because the market is local. It's not going to go out of the country. So uh, uh, Roundup, there's Roundup Ready uh, corn and there's BT corn out there. Uh, and and uh, these are sold on roadside kinds of things anything where there's not a chance that the corn would leave the country it's it's fair game yeah i've had some actually i got some at a farmer's market from um actually they were they were specifically showcasing monsanto lines i think it was obsidian is that the sweet corn anyway whatever the sweet corn line was they were they were uh they were selling at this farmer's market they were uh, selling as a local um, locally produced version of that particular corn line. And they mm-hmm. were talking very proudly about the sources of the different seeds and things like that. And I ate them, and I didn't die or anything. <laughs> Just fine. So with, with if, if these things are available, and they're cutting insecticide use because of BT and changing the, um, not using atrazine or whatever else you would use if you didn't have Roundup. Correct. Um, why don't we do that here in Florida? Uh, the the big issue is that the, some of this corn is shipped to Europe. So because there's a, a European connection, the growers will not grow any transgenic corn. And so how do they get around the problems that would normally be mitigated by a transgene? Uh, spray and spray and spray. So you, you use a... You use a Traditional insect controls, correct? Rather than genetic insect controls, correct? Yeah, so, I so. mean, you, you and I have both spent time down there, and when I'm at Belglade, uh, I know it's time to, to get up because I hear the spray planes out. Yeah, yeah. you know, because they'll, they'll come out at, at yeah, uh, daylight, as, and so you know, it's pretty amazing. I think if people saw that, you really do appreciate um, how much a genetic solution can uh, mitigate the use of, of chemical controls. Right. And, and, you know, it's not that the chemical controls, and we should stress, I mean, those things are used safely. The corn's perfectly fine. Right. But it's a question of you're growing corn in really a harsh environment. You're right. growing these, you know, Florida is, is ground zero for every critter in the world and mm-hmm. everything that wants to destroy fruits and vegetables. And so you have to go to these extreme measures to, to combat it. And how much money the industry might save, how much more affordable the product might be, um, who knows? Um, and and the carbon footprint. The carbon certainly. You know, the, because all the all the fuel and and stuff that they use to have to put these sprays on, I mean, it's huge. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's all kinds of good reasons to do it, and I I would hope that one of these days we'll <laughs> let science reign and and we'll do this stuff, but. Uh, don't, don't count know. on it. I know, I know. I'm 72 years old. I don't know that I'll live long enough to see it. Uh, you, I think you'll be surprised. I don't know. What, what, what else is new for, what else is happening in sweet corn now, and what can consumers look forward to in the future for uh, improvements or maybe new varieties? 
Well, you know, some problems never go away. Uh, disease resistance and things like that. Um, what I don't think people realize is uh, the Darwinian evolution is real. And when people breed uh, by conventional genetics, conventional breeding, resistance to a, to a pathogen or something, that resistance will hold for a while, but the pathogen is smaller, it reproduces much quicker, it's a numbers game. And eventually the pathogen will overcome the plant resistance and we're back to uh, breeding for more resistance. I remember as a graduate student at, at uh, Purdue, there was a program there breeding uh, wheat for an insect resistance and they'd come up with resistant materials by conventional breeding. And, but they never stopped breeding. They, they, they knew it would last about five years and would break down mm -hmm. and they'd need more stuff. So, um, this kind of, and, and we've seen this thing with the, the BT and, and Roundup resistant weeds. I mean, it's the same, same concept. So these kinds of things are, are, are ongoing. Uh, they'll, you know, breeding for, for, uh, pest resistance is still a big issue. Um, you know, I've talked about some of the traits, ear placement on the stock, uh, ease of pulling off the sure. ear. The, how, big the, they, how big they are, how they fit in a cart. In exactly, cart. yeah, in and South Florida. Yeah, interesting point. In South Florida, they have to be a certain length and a certain width yeah. to fit into their boxes. Yeah. So that's a constraint on 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 uh, commercial uh, sweet corn that you don't have, say, for uh, uh, roadside uh, sales and stuff like that, or garden corn. Oh, very you true. know, you don't care. Uh, you know, if you go, if you have a garden, you go out and pick corn to eat. You don't really care how long the ear is or how uh, thick it is or any of those kinds of things. Well, that's uh, very true, and, yeah. and 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 that was one of the things I found so striking because I, when I first when I first landed here, or no, no, when I first was doing the chair job. I started to, um, I was down there with maybe with Steve Sargent and Rob Berger was, and you were down there yeah. too. And we're talking about, um, and that was two of the lines that were being released um, as right. hybrids. And right. one of the big traits was that it was superior for packing. It just fit better in a box. <laughs> you know, and who, and, but these are the things that people don't think about when they think about sweet corn. Right. And one right. of the reasons that it's important to do the podcast. So. Right, right. Well, and, 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 and because of all these traits, the, the sweet corn germplasm is very narrow because it's been under selection for all these traits, so it gets smaller and smaller. One of the nice things about uh, the revolution we're seeing with DNA and DNA sequencing and marking and, and, and markers is now we can feasibly incorporate genes from field corn in, into sweet corn and do it in an efficient way by using markers. So we're going to see more and more of that of useful genes in field corn being uh, transferred into sweet corn. And then that's where the program's going here now, right? Correct. And so we Correct. last year hired uh, Dr. Marcio Resende, who is uh, uh, really works with genomic selection and uses more computational and statistically based right. methods right. to make breeding choices and to study populations and, and identify uh, individuals that have a higher likelihood of being uh, superior or mm -hmm. having superior combinations mm -hmm. of genetics. Right. So really, really good stuff and really exciting to see where things are going. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and, and anything that you would like to see happen in the next couple of years, like, you know, or... <laughs> well, other than uh, people come to their senses on GMOs and things like that, that 
that would be not. I mean, people can accept climate change and the causes, and yet those, some of those same people have a hard time accepting the science behind GMOs. I, I, I continue to be, uh, I don't know. Amazed, amazed, disgusted. Yeah, disgusted. I, I think uh, I understand this though, and I, I think I got it because think of it like this: when you're, and, and it goes back to that, that all that stuff that Dan Kahneman talks about about system one and system two thinking. So, true. The, the reptile brain, you know, the in the in the middle of the head that's controlling uh, fast responses to threats, and then the more cognitive executive function, which is more processing, and things like vaccination climate, they all appeal to that um, uh, cognitive function. You can put together evidence and get some sort of data out, uh, some sort of conclusion that makes sense. When you're talking about food, you're talking about something that's hitting the reptile brain, the lowest rung on the Maslow hierarchy of needs, right? And so there's a certain weirdness that comes along with any time you're talking about food. And when we live in a place of great abundance and low cost, there's no there's no impetus to take a risk true and true and so you so you 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 it all goes in that lowest part of the brain and um and in triggers those sense of threats and sense of dread and sense of uh you know something unusual so i think that's where we have to really think about this going forward is how do we and i've talked about this all the time when we talk about science communication is how do we make Food technology not threatening. Mm-hmm. And well, part of this though is they don't. People don't understand what goes on in in conventional plant breeding. Right. You know, uh, <laughs> if people God. really, that's <laughs> kind of like making sausage. Um, you know, I've often said if you ask the typical person in Miami what they think of plant breeding. They would say it's a perverted sex act that should be outlawed. That's right. You know, no, they do it just fine on their own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, that was like the first time I started to learn about strawberry breeding, and I looked online because one of the popular Florida cultivars is Sweet Charlie. Yeah. And so I looked up emasculation Sweet Charlie, and you don't want to know what I found. <laughs> it was not a. Pre- I thought I do not want to be a plant breeder. <laughs> I'm not wearing that outfit. Yeah. <laughs> So, so that I mean that that I think is the what people you know the shark and two eye story you know there there are these unknowns of these genetic changes that that could be coming along there. People don't have a clue yeah. that that kind of stuff goes on. So, um, but you're I, doing you're you're participating in that correction, and I mean I've, you've written for Genetic Literacy Project, right? Um, right. You've been active in uh, GMO Answers, right? GMO Answers. In, in, in other places. Yeah. I've been called a Monsanto shill many times. I take that as a badge of, of honor. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, it, so. means that you're, it means that you're creating some uh, new information that's making a difference. Mm-hmm. Well, so, let's so, hope. So, <laughs> so if people did want to find you on social media, are you uh, active on Twitter still? Or you? Uh, yeah, I, I have an account there. I'm Florida Corn Man on Flo- Twitter. <laughs> But uh, to be honest, I don't really know how to use Twitter all that well. Okay, well, so follow Florida Corn Man, yeah. and once he has a few thousand followers, then maybe he'll be excited to learn how to use it. Yeah. And I'll help you. We'll, we'll maybe, go, yeah, I was going to we'll, say, we'll maybe off air here, you can help me with yeah, we can do that. figuring and, out how to do that. And then, uh, and then uh, if so that's maybe the best way, it's one way people could get in touch with you, but you're right. also on the website here at the University right. of Florida. Right, and Facebook. And oh, and Facebook like, and yeah. things like that. Okay. And I'm an expert for GMO Answers, uh, 
and I get on the genetic literacy project uh, now and then. So I need to get a, I need to do more of that. Uh, and if I kind of slow down professionally, I plan on on getting more active in that stuff. Well, in but, the unlikely event you slow down professionally, <laughs> <laughs> I've been hearing you're quitting now for eight years. I know it's you know. it's becoming embarrassing, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. That's good though, because you know the, the world needs more Kurt Hannas, and so we're you know, very grateful for you taking the time to talk to us today. And maybe we'll catch up with you again in ten more years. <laughs> <laughs> See what's going on. Yeah, maybe I'll take on chestnut breeding or some some, <laughs> some project like that. Well, thank you very much for talking. To well, us. thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to Talking Biotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, Scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.